Expert Gold Radio Show, which shows you how to grow your business by leveraging your expertise. Now here's your host, Gihan Pereira, for this month's show. Hello and welcome to Expert Gold Radio for September 2012. The two main segments in today's show are about LinkedIn and the changes for out-of-office workers. So let's jump right in and talk about LinkedIn. Now, I've heard some people say that the social media bubble has burst, mainly based on Facebook's dramatic fall in share price since the company went public a few months ago. But I don't think that's true. Social media is still important, but you have to know how to do it right. And in my book, Fast, Flat and Free, in the chapter Invest in Reputation, I talk about how to do social media right. And one of the best tools is LinkedIn, which is the biggest online business network and I think is an essential platform for experts. People like us, professional speakers, trainers, coaches, consultants, other sort of business professionals when we're dealing with peers and when we're dealing with our business clients. And in this interview, Kirsten Hodgson, the author of the book LinkedIn for Lawyers, describes how any business professional can use LinkedIn effectively. Hello, this is Gihan Pereira, and today I'm talking to Kirsten Hodgson. Kirsten's a marketing expert, and she specializes in marketing for professional service firms, particularly for legal firms. And if her name rings a bell, that's because she was my guest on Expert Gold Radio in March, and we talked about building your online reputation. And I invited her back this month to talk about LinkedIn, because she's just released her book, LinkedIn for Lawyers, which is published by LexisNexis. So welcome, Kirsten. How are you going? Hi, I'm well, thanks, Gian. And you? Yeah, very well, very well. So let's start with the book. So how does it feel to be a published author? Oh, it feels great. Um, it's quite a relief after so long. You know, the process takes such a long time. That actually seeing um, the book come to fruition is brilliant. I know it does take some time, but it's really nice to have that book in your hot little hands, isn't it? It is. It's great. <laughs> so you've called this LinkedIn for lawyers. And uh, I'm just curious to get your perspective on how much of what you share is equally applicable to other professional service firms and I- indeed any other sort of expert. Yeah, it's funny that you asked that because I got some lawyers and um, professional services consultants to review the book and two of them said to me that this is totally applicable to any professional and in fact I'm going to be adapting the book and updating the examples to make it relevant to other audiences. And that's what I found as I was reading through it. I realized that most of what you're saying, maybe 80 or 90% of the book seems to be applicable to, to any sort of business professional, any sort of expert who wants to position themselves using LinkedIn. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, the, tool, the tool is the same and the way that you go about using it would be the same depending on your goals. Um, it's just I think that people like to have examples from their own industry and so while I could have done a book LinkedIn for professionals it's perhaps too wide and people can't then relate to it as well so that was the whole rationale um, behind doing LinkedIn for lawyers and then adapting it to different audiences. Yep, great and and that does make sense. So so let's start talking about maybe the the people who are skeptical about this Kirsten because I, I would guess that most professional service firms, lawyers, accountants and in fact a lot of experts get most of their business from referrals. So if you're an established firm and you are getting most of your business from repeat and referral business, why should you get involved in something like social media? Good question. I think there's a couple of reasons. So firstly, if somebody refers you, that person may get referrals from other people too. And there's been some research done by BTI Consulting in America that found that once people are referred, that person will then look online and they'll see what can they find about you. So if somebody does that, if you're referred and they look online, what are they going to find? It's likely that your social media profiles, if you're on any of those sites, will appear highly in Google searches. So do they position you in the way that you want to be positioned? So that's the first point. And the second point is that really these tools turn the traditional business development process on its head. So whereas in the past you meet people and then connect with them online, what these tools enable you to do is to actually meet people online and start to build relationships there and then create more of those face-to-face opportunities. So essentially you could be building even more referrers. Okay, that's interesting because what you're saying is that it does two things. So you get the lead conversion first. So you've already got the referral, but you still need to do more to convert them. And also you can actually use it for lead generation as well. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Now, I I like LinkedIn and obviously you like LinkedIn. And when people talk about social networks, the big three they always talk about are Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And I think it's it's a bit unfortunate that LinkedIn always seems to come across the poor cousin. But I noticed that in your book, you make the point that LinkedIn is not a social network, it's a business network. Uh, what do you mean by that? What's the distinction that you make there? 
People, when they're on LinkedIn, are there for business reasons. So there's not the clutter that you see elsewhere. The conversations on LinkedIn are all business-related. And HubSpot did a survey last year that found that it's, I think, three times more effective for lead generation than Facebook and Twitter. So if you're in the business-to-business market, then your clients, prospects, referrers, and other influencers are likely to be there. Now, a lot of lawyers have said to me, well, I don't know that my clients are there. And I'm saying to them, okay, well, we'll find out. But also the media are there, journalists that that you want to be quoted by and potential referrers are there and other prospective clients are there. You look at the stats for Australia and New Zealand and I think there's over 3 million Australians on LinkedIn and there's over 500,000 Kiwis. So that's an eighth of our population. The tool's just too big to ignore. And I think that uh, it wasn't so long ago that I was looking at the stats and there were 2 million Australians on LinkedIn. So if it's grown to three very quickly, then it's certainly growing. And it's, um, it's not one of those things that's growing slowly, it's growing very quickly. Yeah, and I think it's it's just getting even more rapid. When I was writing the book, um, there were 150 million LinkedIn users globally in March this year. And I saw something a few weeks ago saying there's now 165 million. So that's mm. just huge in the space of three or four months. Mm. Can you give me an example of somebody who's used this successfully, a law firm you might be able to talk about? I mean, you can choose whether to name names or not. Yeah, I think um, there's only so much you can do at a firm level. I think fundamentally, uh, LinkedIn and other social channels are about building relationships one-on-one. And so it's about people connecting with people. In terms of examples, great example of a lawyer. He was an HR practitioner and he joined LinkedIn in 2007 And in 2009, got out his little black book and started connecting with all the HR managers that he knew. And he was really pleased when the vast majority accepted immediately. And it made him realize that his audience was on LinkedIn. So he started off just joining two HR groups and and commenting on discussions. And he then thought, that actually he needed to take it a step further and set up his own group because he saw a gap in the market that there wasn't really a group for HR directors and managers. The reason that he did that was they'd done some surveys with their clients before and they'd found that while the clients loved the HR team, non-clients really had no idea who they were. And so they set themselves a goal of within three years being known by all the senior HR practitioners in their market. So he set up this group. He invited 100 of his connections to join, and within two weeks, 60 of them had accepted. This was in January 2011. The group now has over a 1,000 members. On the back of that, the firm decided to set up an HR question time at their offices and they invited members of the group and got members of the group to be on the panel. They also promoted it through LinkedIn events and at the first event, I think they got 70 or 80 people coming along and the lawyers said it was the freshest audience they'd seen in years. The vast majority were not clients of their firm but were clients of other firms and they got work on the back of it. Six months later... They held a similar event in their other office and they got 120 people coming along. And again, these people were not clients of their firm. As a result of that and and sharing other information, this lawyer and his team have created a lot of work for their firm and they've reached their goal. He thinks that they're known by about 95% of HR directors and managers in their market. The other really good thing that he did initially was connect with dormant clients and and former clients and one particular person who he hadn't spoken to in two years responded to him saying thanks for inviting me to connect the project we worked on nothing's happened on it so they exchanged a couple of emails and, and that was it a few months later he saw that she'd actually left her job and got a new role and he sent her a, an email through LinkedIn just congratulating her He then just carried on sharing status updates about about HR legislation changes and so on. And a few months later, she got in touch with him via LinkedIn saying, I've been reading your updates. We're we're going to tender for our HR legal services. Would your firm like to pitch? They did and they won. So I think that's a really good example of somebody who has used LinkedIn well and really benefited from it. 
that's just an amazing case study, this amazing success story, Kirsten. And there's, yeah. so, there's so much in there. Um, let me pick out a couple of things then. So one of the things you, you started by saying was that he started with a goal in mind. If you are starting out, should you be starting with some sort of goal in mind or should you just jump in and, and just get started and do what you can and then the goals might evolve based on based on your experience? No, I think you have to be really clear about what it is you're looking to achieve. And really that comes down to your business and your marketing plan. So what are your goals? And then how can LinkedIn help you to achieve those goals when it's used in conjunction with everything else that you're doing? So if you've got clear goals... Then you can think about, okay, well, then how might I use LinkedIn to help me achieve those goals? So if you want to get more work from existing clients, then you might think about, okay, well, what issues are those clients facing? What are their needs? And then you might start using LinkedIn in addition to your other channels to communicate some of those things and to share content that they might find of value. I, I don't think you should jump in without any clear goals in mind because you can waste a lot of time online. Mm, mm. Okay, then another thing that you mentioned was that, that this guy seems to be quite active or seems to have been quite active. So he was making connections, he was starting groups, he was creating events. Do you think that sort of stuff is necessary to succeed on LinkedIn or is it better to just start by in a more quiet way? So you just create a profile and then just connect with people who connect with you? Or do you really have to make an effort to get to get some results from LinkedIn? I think your use of it grows in stages. So the, the first step is to set up your profile and then to connect with people. And, and typically you will start off connecting with, with people in your existing network, so your existing clients, referrers, and so on. But then if that's all you're doing, then LinkedIn's nothing more than a living address book in the fact that people can mm. update their own details. So actually, if you want to use it for lead generation or you want to use it to raise your profile, then you do have to be active. And that will take time. You know, initially, people tend to be more comfortable using their status updates and communicating with their, with their existing clients or former clients and looking to use LinkedIn as another way to stay top of mind and as a way to get more face-to-face -face contact with those people. But then over time, I think once people get comfortable with that, you know, obviously this will happen a lot quicker for some people than for others. I think then they see, actually, this is a great way to find more of those people who could really benefit from my services and build relationships with those people. And that sort of tends to be a later phase, typically. Okay. Okay. So you can start small and still keep building up. Absolutely. One of the things you just mentioned was about uh, your profile, which is your profile on LinkedIn. And I must admit that most of the LinkedIn profiles I've seen are quite bland and plain and not very exciting. Uh, do you have any suggestions for making your profile more interesting, especially when you're working in so, uh, somewhere like a, a professional service firm where you don't want to be too out there, but you do still want to attract the right sort of people? Yeah, I think there. firstly, you need to... Think about, well, who do, you, who do you want to be reading your profile? If it's prospective clients, then what do they want to know about? I interviewed clients of professional services firms in New Zealand, and typically there are three things that are important to them when hiring advisors. And the first thing is, do they have the, the right experience? Um, have they worked on this sort of, these sort of things before? Have they got the reputation? The second thing is, are they a good fit? both with my, my organization and with my wider team, if, if there's other advisors used in a project. And thirdly, do they understand my business or do they understand my industry? So that's coming across time and time again when I conduct these interviews. So if that's what's important, then it's thinking about how can you bring that sort of information through into your profile. So your experience, for example, could come through in case studies. It could come through in by integrating a, a presentation into your profile. It could come through in, in what you're saying about what you've done. You're fit, perhaps slightly harder, but, but by bringing through your approach to working, how do you work? What do you like to work with? Getting testimonials from people, they all help to establish your fit so that people can make a call. And then in terms of your understanding of somebody's business or industry, again, that might come down to some of the content that you're sharing. And you can build that into your profile by having, having a set of files there on a specific industry or linking your blog or whatever it happens to be. 
So there are a lot of ways that you can enrich your profile. But at a very, very basic level, I'd say firstly, get your headline right. A lot of people tend to put owner of X company, but really that's not giving me any reason to to view your profile or to want to find out more. So tell people something about the industry you're working or how you can help them. For example, my headline is helping professionals to generate more work from existing clients and attract more of their ideal clients. And the second thing is is your summary. I'd say that at the very least, you should be conveying who you help, what you help them with, some of the results that you've achieved, and a call to action. I think so many profiles don't include a call to action. And it's a missed opportunity because you want to invite people to continue the conversation or to get in touch with you. What's an example of a call to action on a LinkedIn profile? I would just say I'd love to find out more about what it is you're looking to achieve um, to find out more, visit my website or give me a call. Yeah, great. I don't think I've ever seen that on any profile, not even my own, but that's one thing that I'll be adding to mine. <laughs> I've seen it on a few. I didn't didn't come up with it myself, but I have seen it on a few um, people who are active in the social media space. And, and having read their profiles, I always thought that's a great idea and it does make me um, take that step and get in touch. That's right. It makes sense because if they've gone to all the trouble of reading down that far, you might as well ask them to connect with you in the way that you'd, you'd prefer them to connect with you. Absolutely. So let's, let's talk about connections, Kirsten, because I remember when I first started LinkedIn, which is a long time ago, the only way you could connect with people was you either had to know them or you could connect through somebody else. Now I know that LinkedIn has other ways of connecting with people, but not all of them are approved by LinkedIn. And even some of those that are allowed aren't necessarily the best way to do it. So should you only connect with people you know, or is it okay to connect with others? And if you're going to connect with people you don't know, are there the rules or guidelines or ways to do that that you'd recommend? Yeah, again, I think it comes down to your objectives. So what is it you're looking to achieve? If you're looking at focusing on existing clients or people that you know, then you might not want to connect with people that you don't know. But if you're looking to build your business, there may be really good reasons why you connect with people you don't know. For example, journalists or prospective clients or people that you may have had a discussion with on a LinkedIn group. Um, I personally connect selectively with those I don't know, provided that they um, work in a similar area or they're sharing content that I find useful. Um, and I always look at their profile first. If you want to invite people that you don't know to connect, then you need to think what's in it for them. LinkedIn traditionally comes up with this boilerplate text when you want to invite people. And it's something like I'd like to add you to my LinkedIn network. Now, I would always say do not use that text, whether you know the person or not. It doesn't take long to write a personalized message and it can make the difference between your invite being accepted or not. If it's someone you know well, you've got the opportunity to tailor the invite and to potentially get a face to face meeting with them. If it's someone you don't know, just tell them why they should connect with you and why you want to connect with them. And you'll find that your acceptance rate goes up, which is also important because if people say that they don't know you on LinkedIn, you can your account can get blocked. Right, so, right. So if enough people complain about you trying to connect with them as strangers, then LinkedIn will take action. Yes, they will. Right. It seems to be the most common reason why people get blocked. But I would say that... If you're wanting to connect with people you don't know, just use your common sense and be courteous and polite. And don't try and rush into making a sale. It's not about trying to get strangers to buy from you immediately. It's about trying to build a relationship with strangers so that they want to keep hearing from you and so that eventually they'll be ready to buy from you. And I think I read about that uh, in a recent blog post, Kirsten. I think even today I was reading a blog post that you wrote where you made that exact point that you shouldn't be trying to convert strangers into customers. You should be trying to convert strangers into somebody who wants to have an ongoing relationship with you. Yeah, yeah, I did put that blog post out. And that was on the back of um, somebody inviting me on LinkedIn, um, a stranger basically inviting me to connect and in that same message trying to sell to me. And I'd never come across them before. And it was just really ill thought out. And I'm thinking, well, why would I want to connect with you? Tell me why. And why would I want to buy from you? I don't know you. And I looked at their profile and they were showing no content. There was no credentializing of them. 
And and that was just the wrong way to go about it. But just thinking about what you've just said about how you'd invite people to connect, I know that that's actually true when I get requests to connect. It's exactly what you've said. If I get a request from somebody I don't know and all they've done is they've just sent me the default message from LinkedIn, I typically won't connect with them. I'll just generally ignore them. But if they go to even some extent to mention that they read my newsletter or we're in the same group or we're in the same industry or something like that, I will almost always connect. So that's all it takes. Yeah, absolutely. It's just finding some common ground. Just just on another tack, I noticed that you talk in your book about content marketing. In fact, even before you start talking about how to start using LinkedIn, you've got a chapter all about content marketing. And that's something that I love as well. And I know it's a pretty popular area at the moment. What's your take on it? And how should business professionals use that, uh, in particularly in things like social media, like LinkedIn? A lot of it is about positioning yourself as an expert. And so content marketing is a key part of that. Um, if you're sharing relevant content, then you're effectively doing people's reading for them, which means that by following you, they can spend less time doing their own doing their own reading, if you like. And you become somebody that, that, that they see as an expert or an authority in their area. And so there are two, you know, in terms of that content marketing, you can either create content yourself or you can become a content curator, which is what I've just talked about, that doing people's reading for them, which can be really effective. And I know a lot of professionals are really reticent to spend the time creating content on a regular basis themselves because they're worried about the time that might take, in which case they might want to go down that content curation route. I think the ideal is is to have a mixture of both. I think you do need your voice and it is important to to be heard and and to, and to credentialize yourself by your own thinking so that people people can make a call about whether you're somebody that they'd like to do business with. But I I do think that a large part of what you do can be sharing other people's content and should be because it allows you to then build those relationships in turn with those people. And one of the things I notice is that quite often you retweet things that I send, and I guess that's part of your content curation as system, isn't it, Kirsten? Because you're just getting stuff from lots and lots of different people. Most of it you discard because it's not relevant to your clients, but some of it you will pass on because it is relevant. Absolutely. I just think it's amazing how few people are doing this content curation because they have to read their stuff anyway. That's part of their own professional development. Why not share uh, with their networks the stuff that, that's relevant to them? Yeah, and it's very easy to do. And then there's a, and then there's another step. If there are people that you really want to build a relationship with, and they're sharing content, then by then by sharing that content with your network, you're getting on their radar. Plus, you can then actually initiate a conversation with them. You can go back to them and say, "Really enjoyed that," or you can comment on their blog post, or you can go back to them on Twitter or, or LinkedIn or whatever it happens to be. And, and again, start to build that relationship. And that's something that would have been really hard to do a few years ago is just get in front of some of those people. Actually, it just, it just made me think about something because you talked about, okay, so one of the things you do is you share content, your original content. Another thing you do is you can share other people's content. Those two things are outbound. A third part of it might be things coming inwards. So you might get questions on, particularly on your own content that you share. And one of the common questions that I get is when you start engaging on some of these social networks like LinkedIn or even your own blog, where do you draw the line between giving free advice and getting paid clients? Yeah, that's a hard one. I think everybody has their own comfort zone and you need to find that. Um, I'm a great believer in giving people enough information that they could do it on their own, but but not giving away everything. You know, typically what I find is if I give people enough that they could go away and populate their profile, a few may do it, but the vast majority just don't have the time nor the inclination. And so I find that by doing that, by giving people some of the how, they then come back to me and ask me to do it for them. So I actually think that helps me to build clients. And again, it comes down to comfort level. I'm I'm quite comfortable giving away a certain amount and giving people a few tips and tricks that they can actually use because there's nothing more frustrating than reading all this theory and then just being given nothing. Mm-hmm. And so, so I do think you need to go a certain distance, but you don't have to give absolutely everything away. Of course you don't. 
Um, but just give enough that people see that, yes, you know what you're talking about. Yes, I could go away and do that myself. But actually, this is going to be a real hassle. Why don't I just get so-and-so to do it for me? Okay, great. Great. Now, I know that LinkedIn, when, again, when I first started LinkedIn, there weren't things like groups and even answers and events and some of those more sophisticated tools for sharing and engaging with people. What what sort of mix do you recommend, Kirsten, for somebody who's getting started? Obviously, you set up your own profile. You might be sharing some things through your own status updates. How much do you think you should get involved in answering questions in the uh, in groups or in answers or just get uh, where are the right places to get engaged and how much should you get involved? I think one of one of the great tools on LinkedIn is the groups because there's groups for everyone. So if you're looking to engage with other professionals in your field, there'll probably be a group. If you're looking at where your clients are, there'll be a group. And you can look at their profiles and provided that they've shown that information, you can see which groups they're a member of and join the same groups. And I think groups are great because they work for people who, who operate within a certain geography or they work um, within a certain industry. So, Everybody who, every professional who is on LinkedIn will be able to find a group where the people they want to engage are. So I think initially it's really good to look at the group, look at the discussions, and, and if, if they're relevant, then, then join. And start by observing and, and thinking, okay, well, what works on this group? How does it operate? And when you're first getting started, I know when I first posted my first comment in a discussion thread, I was really nervous. And I think that's a really good place to start because if you read through through the, the comments other, other people have made and you find that you've got something to add, you can add it and you then have 14 minutes to edit it. So even when you've hit, hit that publish button or that send button, um, you can still change it, which actually gives you a certain level of comfort. And then once you're comfortable, then you can look at posting discussions. And, and again, different ways of posting things work in different groups. So it's about looking at that group and seeing what types of things get the best traction and then just emulate that. In terms of answers, I think it can be really useful and I tend to use it to find answers to my questions. But I often find that it's quite America-centric and, and so how much time you spend answering questions you know, it's up to an individual. It can be really useful. It can be a great way to credentialize yourself, but answer questions selectively and answer them when it's people in your target audience that are going to be reading the answers or that are asking the questions. Mm, that's a good insight because I, I know that answers was around before groups, I think. So I was, I was answering questions in answers, but it's really good to know that groups might be the better way to go. You might get better traction there. I think so. I think there's a lot of people who seem to spend spend time answering questions and answers, and I just marvel at the time they have. <laughs> and I'd love, I just need to find out whether they do get a lot of business as a result, because I just wouldn't have the time to do that. Whereas groups, I found it really easy to then build build relationships with people one on one, and often when you've been involved in the same discussion, you might then um, take that offline. And I've had a couple of people in the UK, for example, one guy shared an accounting practice was assigning values to certain business development initiatives. And I was really keen to find out more. So I just private mailed him through LinkedIn and, and we set up a time to Skype. And it was great. I learned a lot more about that. Um, we exchanged potential opportunities for each other and, and got a lot of value from that. Okay, great. Actually, you mentioned something. You said taking things offline, which I know you meant taking off LinkedIn. But one of the questions I was going to ask you about is actually using LinkedIn to take to uh, take a relationship completely offline and into the real world. And in fact, you mentioned that in that story that you spoke about earlier, Kirsten, where uh, this person got really engaged on LinkedIn and then created an event which actually brought people into his firm, physically into his firm. Do you have any tips on how to take LinkedIn uh, professional relationships that you make on LinkedIn, how to take them uh, and convert them into actual face-to-face relationships? Yeah, I think firstly, don't be in too much of a rush to do so. Mm. So if it is somebody that you don't know, then just take the time to start to build the relationship within LinkedIn. And then once you're comfortable with that, then maybe suggest meeting for a coffee or, 
you know, inviting them to a relevant event like the lawyer did. Another way is to ask people to guest blog posts for you or appear on your radio show like, like you've done mm-hmm. um, or to ask for their opinion on something. Often I've spoken to a couple of professionals who've had discussions about a topic and, and other people in the thread have, have, have held similar views and they've then got together offline to discuss that topic in more detail. And I've seen a few people put together roundtables offline as well, which work really well. So they just get small groups of people in a room to discuss a particular issue. Another way um, that people are doing, and, and I quite like it, is just setting up those social meetings. So there's a group here in New Zealand, New Zealand Business Network, and you, you sometimes see that there's going to be a meeting in a, in a pub and it's just come together and then there's there's rules, so no selling and it's it's about just just meeting others in the group and getting to know them and a bit of an experiment really but i think those sorts of things are a really good way of bringing those relationships into the real world actually it reminded me i just did i did something like that when i spent a month in auckland in 2010 uh, one of the things i did was i looked at linkedin groups in auckland to see whether i could connect with them and then uh, actually attend one of their meetings and i think there was a social media group which i attended one of their meetings which is fantastic and there were a couple of others uh, around internet marketing so i did use linkedin as a way to to meet up with people when i was going to be in their city and i've heard people do that even with conferences where people going to a conference will meet and connect through linkedin first so when you actually meet up at the conference you actually know the person yeah, and I think the LinkedIn events feature is now becoming more used and it, it's got great potential. If people are registering for events through LinkedIn, then brilliant because you can set up those meetings before the event and maximize your time at the conference. Okay, so it seems like there's a, there's a lot of reasons why lawyers and other business professionals and other experts should be using LinkedIn. So let's talk about getting started. So you've said that you shouldn't just jump in and get started. You should have some sort of plan or strategy in mind. What about things like a social media policy? So if you're, if you're using LinkedIn from within a firm, do you recommend that the firm should have a formal or informal social media policy or just trust people to do the, do, do the right thing? No, I think all organizations need a policy because otherwise you're leaving people to their own devices and I think you're opening yourself up to potential issues. Um, But I think a policy needs to be simple and it needs to tell people what they can do and I think it needs to be supported by training. Everybody in your organization should have the basic training, understand the platforms that you're using and what is and isn't acceptable and what you expect. And then those who are using social media in a formal basis perhaps need more advanced training about their role and escalation processes and legal risks and all those sorts of issues. In terms of the policy, I think it has to address social media usage outside of work as well, because people may be on these channels outside of work. So just let them know what what they should be doing and give them that guidance. Okay, great, great. So that's useful as a framework to get started. So I know you do lots of consulting with firms and other organizations, helping them get started with LinkedIn. Do you get much pushback from people who say they just don't have the time to do this or it's not going to give any sort of return on investment? Or, or maybe they just say that these are non-billable hours, so we can't afford them. Yeah, you get a, get a lot of that. That's probably one of the most common um, objections that I hear. Um, is how much time will it take and and I don't have the time. I think it's a bit of a catch-22 situation. Um, Professionals need to see the evidence that it works before spending time on LinkedIn, but then they need to invest some time to see a return. That's quite difficult. Um, Lawyers I've spoken to who are spending time on LinkedIn have typically done so because they've got some business through LinkedIn from a dormant client. And typically it's because they've connected with somebody and that getting back in touch has meant that they've then gone for a coffee and had the opportunity to get some to get some more business. And so they've gone, oh, actually, maybe this tool is valuable. And I, I understand the time concern and it, and it is an issue. But I think that you can get a lot of traction just by spending a limited amount of time on LinkedIn each day perhaps 15 to 30 minutes. If you want to cut down that time, you could get your PA or your virtual assistant or, or a colleague to monitor LinkedIn and for you. 
and to find the conversations that you should be contributing to and to look at what your contacts are, are sharing and, and let you know what you should be reading and sharing yourself. The one thing that I would really caution against outsourcing, though, is that engagement, because you have to build those relationships yourself and you have to be authentic. And and I just would hate to think that I think I'm having a conversation with one person that's actually somebody behind the scenes. I, I agree. And it's very, very hard to have that authentic engagement and have that outsourced, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Because everybody has their own way of saying things and it and it shows through. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. So, Kirsten, before we finish up, I do want to uh, ask you how you can help organisations uh, with LinkedIn and uh, with their social media and their online marketing in general. And I know one of the things, of course, is the book. And one of the things I really liked about the book is that it covers both strategy and tactics, a bit like our conversation today, that we've talked about some of the big picture things, but you've also given some really specific examples. And in the book, I noticed as well, you really do give people the why and the what, but also it's full of step-by-step processes, lots of screenshots, uh, links to other resources, video tutorials, uh, QR codes, So I think it's a fabulous resource for anybody who wants to get started with LinkedIn or who wants to improve what they they do with LinkedIn. So what's the best way that people can get the book, Kirsten? Thank you for that, first of all. (laughs) So the best way to get the book is if you're in Australia, then you go to LexisNexis, which is L-E-X-I-S-N-E-X-I-S dot com dot A-U. And if you go to that e-store, then the book is there and you can order your copy. If you're in New Zealand or the rest of the world, then go to lexisnexis.co.nz and again, you can order the book. The book's available in hard copy and as an ebook, and there's also a webinar option. Oh, what's the webinar option? So that's just, I'm going to be running a 45-minute webinar, basically giving some background to LinkedIn and an overview of some of the things in the book and just giving a few tips and tricks that people can use. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. So again, the book is LinkedIn for Lawyers and you can get it at LexisNexis. What else do you do, Kirsten? What else can you do to help people with their with LinkedIn and with their online marketing? So the other thing that I'm doing is I've set up a series of workshops. They're designed to take people through the process of of using LinkedIn for business development purposes and and helping them achieve their goals. So rather than just a one-off workshop that gives you everything at once, it's designed to actually grow with you. So it takes you through step by step. So the first one is getting your profile set up and, and giving you a couple of things that you can then do, looking at connecting with people. And after each module, you'll be given homework or things to do before moving on to the next module. So it just recognizing that people's use of LinkedIn does grow in stages. It's designed to, to sort of handhold you through that. And I also run train the trainer workshops. So for anybody who's working internally within a professional services organization and wants to do the training themselves, um, I can just, just get them to a stage where they can do that and also run um, tailored workshops or speak on LinkedIn and other social media as and when people need that. So if anybody's interested in that, then you can contact me at Kirsten at K-Scope Marketing, which is the letter K, S-C-O-P-E, marketing.co.nz. And all that information about those workshops is actually up on a website that I've set up for the book, And you can find that at www.lawfirmsandsocialmedia.com. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Kirsten. Thank you for sharing all your ideas and particularly your your wisdom and insights with, with LinkedIn, because I'm sure it'll be very, very useful for many business professionals. Thank you for the opportunity. And if there are any professionals out there who've had success using LinkedIn, then I'd love to hear from you because I'm building up a repository of success stories that I can just keep sharing with people because I think that people just want to see the evidence and those are the things that really bring it to life for people. So if you've got any of those, then please get in touch. And thank you again, Kirsten. Thank you for your your advice, your ideas and your suggestions for people to get started and for people to make more with their LinkedIn presence. And good luck with the book. Thanks, Gian. Bye for now. Bye. 
Facebook, Google and Apple have changed the way the world works. Most business owners don't know the rules have changed. Get Gihan's book, Fast, Flat and Free, from fastflatandfree.com and learn how to make the internet work for you. You might be working out of office, part-time or full-time. In other words, away from a regular office. You might have a home office or work in internet cafes or work in clients' offices or anywhere where you might be some of the time working away from your office. This has become far more popular now and partly because of changes in technology that make this easier than ever before. My co-author Chris Padney and I talk about this in our book, Out of Office, and we recently had a conversation about what's new for out-of-office workers. We recorded this for our out-of-office podcast. I've got an edited version of that conversation here. For the full podcast episode, visit our website, outofofficebook.com. So today what we're going to talk about is a bit of an update on what's happening with the out-of-office work styles. Uh, uh, things have changed and things continue changing rapidly. The way we'll start is by just briefly recapping the model that, that we talk about in the book. There are three types of out-of-office workers, the semi-commuter, the e-worker, and the digital nomad. So briefly, semi-commuter is a part-time telecommuter. The e-worker is someone like a full-time telecommuter, like you, Chris. And digital nomad is somebody who doesn't necessarily have a fixed office at all, which is someone like me. So we're going to talk about what's changed in the world for out-of-office workers, and we'll, we'll group them under those three areas. Sounds good. All right, so let's start with a semi-commuter, which, as I said, is a part-time telecommuter. Uh, you might have a, a typical, uh, like a home office, but also an office and in the office. And so you will sometimes be meeting with colleagues face-to-face, and sometimes you'll be working from home, and you may still have to uh, interact with your colleagues. So let's look at some of the things that have changed in that area. Chris, do you want to get going? I shall. And uh, one of the reasons for choosing a semi-commuter work style is the convenience that you get from it. Um, so you, you get to work from home sometimes and you can uh, do fit your work style around that. And one of the, the things about the convenience is that you can time shift the way that you work. So time shifting is uh, moving around the time at which you do particular things. And one of the great time shifting tools that both Gihan and I use is a tool called Read It Later. And that's a, a cloud service where you maintain a reading list when you come across something interesting. Rather than uh, setting aside time to read it immediately, you put it onto your Read It Later reading list. It's held in the cloud. And then later, when you've got a bit of free time where you can actually do a bit of reading, you go to your Read It Later reading list and you start reading those articles that you've, you've kind of bookmarked. And uh, once you've read them, you mark them as read and they disappear from your reading list. Now, in the last couple of months, Read It Later has gone through a big upgrade. It's now even changed its name. It's now called Pocket. Um, and along with the name change, they've done lots of changes to the way that your reading list is laid out. It's got a nicer presentation style. There's better handling of multimedia like images, videos and audio. And they've got a nice uh, full screen reader. So um, if you've already made use of Read It Later, then you've been transitioned across to Pocket already. But if you need a really good uh, time-shifting tool for blog articles and, uh, and YouTube clips, then go to getpocket.com and uh, give it a go. So the second area you mentioned about convenience, and that's for yourself, but with the second area that you'd really need to be on top of as a semi-commuter is cooperating with people. Uh, and that can be in a number of ways. So it can be with email or instant messaging or online meetings. And uh, many of those areas have changed. Email hasn't changed a lot, but uh, certainly online meetings is one area where I've noticed now that almost every month there's a new online meeting tool coming out. And uh, I've been using online meeting tools for a while, but there seem to be new things coming up uh, regularly. Um, and also something that I found recently is Google Hangouts. So this is one of the features of Google+. Plus. They have a very easy video conferencing tool called Google Hangouts, which allows you to set up an instant video conference for up to 10 people. And I think that's really good. That's a game changer for Google. Um, and it's one of the things that's going to make video conferencing really easy to use because it, it has been a while uh, that video has been available, but most people don't like video conferencing. They prefer teleconferencing, especially in a business environment. But I think things like Google Hangouts will make a video conferencing um, something that's easy and feasible and, you know, it's, it's free. So it's very, very easy to use. Um, and as a result of that, I think uh, some of these other meeting tools uh, are now trying uh, are now adding video capabilities. GoToMeeting for a long time hasn't had video, and now they've just recently added video. And um, I've heard rumors that GoToWebinar, which is the, the big brother of that version of that tool, is not now also going to be adding video as well. Okay. And when it comes to audio, I guess the king of uh, 
uh, cooperation tools is going to be Skype, the voice over IP tool. And recently that was acquired from eBay, who hadn't really done much with Skype. Um, They hadn't incorporated it into their eBay service. That was bought from eBay by Microsoft. Um, And while Skype was already available for iPhones and iPads and there was a client for Android and I think it was even available on BlackBerry, it wasn't available on Windows smartphones. So since Microsoft have acquired Skype, uh, you can now make sh- if you're one of the few people who has a Windows smartphone, <laughs> you can get uh, you can get uh, enjoy Skype on your Windows smartphone as well. Yeah, and look, the the last thing that we'll talk about in the semi-commuter area is something that I hate and I don't do much of, which is texting, <laughs> which is texting. So where there's like short messages, and I know Chris, you use an instant messenger client that you have running on your computer because you you want to be in touch with with your colleagues. Uh, but I don't use texting much, but lots of people do. Uh, and texting in the past has been expensive, um, and now you can get them under under plans, which make it fairly cheap. But now there are even more tools for doing that sort of uh, instant messaging. So there's a there's a fantastic app which uh, I'm, I'm planning to get, and I keep thinking about. And I must get it, Chris. It's called WhatsApp, and it's basically it it replaces text and uh, SMS. It replaces SMS, and you can basically on your, from your smartphone you can send short messages to anybody else around the world, uh, and at the cost of your normal data plan. So it's essentially free once you pay for your data plan. Uh, Facebook itself has a messaging system which a lot of people use, and that kind of replaces texting as well. Yeah, I use Google Talk. That's been around for a while. Um, when I want to send like a text to Cherie rather than sending her an SMS, I know that she's got uh, Google on her phone. We have the same Android phone, so I use Google Talk instead, and uh, it's it's much cheaper. It's essentially free because it's using data rather than uh, the the SMS service. So those are some of the tools for the semi-commuter, who's a part-time telecommuter. Then the the next type of out-of-office worker is an e-worker. So this is somebody like Chris, who's a, a full-time telecommuter. So you spend all your time away from the office. You don't spend any time in the office. And so there's some things that have changed in the world of, the, of that out-of-office work style as well. That's right, yeah. So uh, something that an e-commuter does a lot is collaborating with colleagues and clients. The other day I had a, a quick sort of spontaneous meeting with a colleague in Switzerland and he was able to talk to me on the phone but at the same time he shared his desktop through a tool that we all now have installed as part of our, our Windows operating system. He was quickly able to show me images of the sort of thing he wanted to have visualised uh, and it was just so easy and seamless uh, because uh, we now, as a matter of course, all have on our desktops uh, a uh, an online meeting tool. Yes, and uh, one example that I've used recently, Chris, is uh, as I mentioned Google Hangouts earlier. So I'm using that now with my clients to set up some mastermind groups. So I've run mastermind groups in the past where people have uh, where people have come to my house. Uh, I used to host them here. And so we'd all be there physically. Uh, but now you can do that online. And using Google Hangouts, we've been using the, the online video conferencing to have people with the same the personal connection that you get with seeing people face to face. But also... Uh, they can be in other parts of the country. In fact, they're in other countries. I, the last one we ran, we had somebody from Canada, the UK, New Zealand, and then people around Australia. So it, it's very easy now to to run those sort of collaborations. Uh, the, the technology no, no longer needs to get in the way. Yeah, that's excellent. And so what's happening here is that we're seeing this enormous growth in the collaboration industry. So new tools, new services. Uh, it's currently estimated to be a $1 billion industry, according to a survey, with it expected to triple to, more than triple, to $3.5 billion by 2016. Uh, and uh, that was a link that you sent me, Gihan, and I read also in there that uh, in the Harvard Business Review, they suggested that Corporations and organizations need to add a CCO to their executive suite, uh, chief collaboration officer, to make sure that large corporations do collaboration properly. It's not just about making sure that you've got all these tools, but that uh, the organization knows how to use them properly so that the principles of collaborating effectively uh, can get the most out of this technology that, uh, as we say, is just going gangbusters from $1 billion industry now to $3.5 billion in a few years' time. Mm, mm. 
Great. So the third area is a digital nomad. And that's somebody like uh, like me uh, who doesn't have a fixed office, even though I'm in my office at the moment, but is somebody who can be uh, can be mobile and has a lives can have a mobile lifestyle. So my office is in my backpack. And as long as I've got my computer, phone and Internet access, I can really work from anywhere. And so there have been some fairly significant changes in the last six to 12 months that help digital nomads. And the first of those is mobile devices, which just keep getting better. So Apple have brought out the iPad 3, which is uh, an upgraded version of the previous iPad with uh, better cameras, higher resolution screen, a faster processor, all those kinds of goodies. Uh, Samsung has now overtaken Apple as uh, the leading manufacturer of smartphones. So Android smartphones overtook Apple iPhones uh, some time ago, but now just a single manufacturer, Samsung, is uh, the leader of the pack. And uh, most recently, uh, both you and I have upgraded our mobile devices. I got a nice uh, Asus Transformer Prime, so I really still need a keyboard when I'm interacting with a tablet. So the Transformer comes with a, a keyboard dock, which means I can type away on my tablet as well as detaching it and uh, touching the screen if I really feel the need. And I believe you've bought what's called, uh, is it an Ultra Ultra? Book, Gihan? Ultrabook, Chris. Yeah, that's right. Which is, uh, it's a, it's a nice little, nice, very, very thin notebook. It's, it's like the MacBook Airs. So Apple, Apple users have had those MacBook Airs for a while and, nice. uh, PC users more recently. And the, the two big things I like about it is one is it's very lightweight. Uh, it fits into like, and, and slim. It actually would fit into one of those big A4 envelopes. Uh, so that's, that's nice. And it's got good battery life as well. Because it's got those solid, it's got a solid state drive, um, so it's got very, really good battery life. So probably half a day to a day on battery, and it's very fast because of the solid state drive. So I really like that. Excellent. Okay, so you're making use of a lot of mobile broadband wireless, I expect. Yeah, and that's one area that's growing faster than other broadbands. Yep. And uh, as far as 4G networks are concerned, Telstra have started rolling out the LTE. 4G network, which is uh, the fastest mobile broadband that you can get. I don't think uh, you're with Telstra, so I'm certainly not, um, but I am with Optus, so Optus are also going to start doing that fairly soon. So we'll be enjoying uh, maybe much faster mobile broadband than we can get through uh, copper ADSL. And uh, when we get that, well, we can start making use of uh, the improvement in but things like Dropbox and the new Google Drive service that allows you to store uh, files in the cloud. So Dropbox have done have increased. I think they've increased the amount of um, free storage that you get. They've also improved the way that uh, video and and photos and other multimedia are handled. And they've also introduced a, a service aimed at businesses called Dropbox for Teams, whereby you can have an administrator who takes care of how things are shared between colleagues within an organisation. And Google's long-awaited uh, foray into uh, cloud storage services has also been launched, Google Drive, and uh, I've started using that. It's um, it's integrated. It's it's a direct competitor with services like iCloud and Dropbox and Box.net, but uh, Google have also integrated it with things like Google Docs and with Gmail and with other and going to integrate it with other um, services they have like the Chrome operating system, which is a cloud operating system for really light lightweight ultrabooks, a bit like the thing that you've got, Gihan. So. Uh, that's another competitor, and how that how that plays against Dropbox. I think Dropbox is still the most popular and um, and probably the best service for that kind of thing. But uh, Google's going to enter the, make it's going to drive competition in that space, and it will make it uh, interesting in the future. Yeah, it certainly it certainly will, and those those sort of things are becoming uh, more important now than ever before because we've got different devices, and we just need to be, have have automatic synchronization across them. Yeah, it's fantastic how that happens. Just uh, you pop these files in the right folder and they pop up on your tablet and on your smartphone and on your PC. It's really good. Yeah, that's right. And so the things we've talked about so far are still about personal productivity. So about um, you using mobile devices and you using mobile wireless access and you using the cloud. But the, And the next stage for a digital nomad is to be able to accommodate other people in your life. And uh, it means that because you're not always available, you need to you need to work with other people. And 
there, there have been a number of areas where that's uh, that's improved. But one of them that uh, I found really, I'm finding, I'm going to find really useful in the near future, Chris, is the idea of using virtual assistants and using other people's support services within your organization. Because one of the challenges with outsourcing or using other people is sharing passwords between them. Um, and it's not necessarily that you don't trust them, but it, there is a challenge of sending people passwords. What happens when the passwords go out of date because you change them, which you should do regularly? What happens when they finish a job and you need to change the password so they no longer have access? So those sort of challenges have always been there. And when you've got a distributed team, and especially when you've got teams that come together for individual projects, that's been a problem. But the LastPass service, uh, which I've only just started using, um, it, what LastPass does is it stores all your passwords for you, and then you have a master password. And when you use that, then it'll log you into other websites and other services. And it's just got a new feature that was announced recently that allows you to uh, share a password with some with another LastPass user. And they don't you don't even need to tell them what the password is. You just say, I want to share it with so-and-so, and then that password... Uh, or that login goes into their LastPass database, which means that they can log into that service. So if you've got a virtual assistant or if you outsource, for example, let's say you outsource some work on your website uh, and you want to give the outsource person access to your website, if they're a LastPass user, you can send them your password to the website. They never see it, um, but they can log in. And then when the project's over, you can remove that sharing, uh, you can remove that access and then they don't have it again. And uh, particularly for me, because uh, my partner Sharon is going to be doing some more work with me, and that's one of the things that we need to do is to share passwords with each other. And uh, in some ways, it's easy because we can sit next to each other and write. I can write down the password on a bit of paper, which she can then burn when she memorizes it. <laughs> um, but using LastPass makes it easy because we just both become LastPass users, and then I can just share a password with her, and she has access to it all. When I change the password, she'll have access to the updated password, and it, it just becomes very convenient. She doesn't have to remember a lot of passwords and I don't have to remember to and I don't have to expose passwords by sharing them on bits of paper great great well finally uh, as a digital nomad you've got the opportunity to really embrace the world so uh, get full access to the internet and uh, and interact um, and share and collaborate uh, fully in it so we're seeing a lot of we're seeing a growing trend in uh, the tendency for people to share pretty much anything and everything uh, and that's probably what prompted Facebook to acquire Instagram and in the process Instagram went from being something that was only available to Apple iPhone iPad users to being available on Android and other operating systems as well but uh, it's always important to remember when you're when you're sharing not to overshare to keep in mind things like safety and security, uh, your personal privacy and confidentiality. So always keep those aspects in mind when before you press the share or send or update button. One of the uh, really useful tools for sharing that uh, Gihan and I both use is called Buffer, and that allows you instead of when you come across something interesting going over to Twitter and tweeting it immediately, you can use the Buffer application to schedule when those tweets appear. So it's really handy, a handy way of, of sharing things because you just put it straight into your Buffer and then Buffer takes care of scheduling that tweet at a later time. Mm. The one thing I'd say is that if you're thinking about an out-of-office work style, then things keep getting better and better. So it's becoming easier and easier for you to do that if you make the choice to do that and if you can persuade your employer or even your clients to, to accommodate that sort of work style. It is becoming more and more um, feasible and uh, available for everyone to do that. Do you want to work from virtually anywhere? The internet makes it possible and the book Out of Office shows you how. Get your copy at outofofficebook.com and get more convenience, comfort and freedom in your work life. I run a members-only webinar for the eGurus community every month. This month's webinar coming up is about video marketing. The eGurus community, if you don't know, is my private membership site. It's for thought leaders, infopreneurs and business professionals. Members of the community pay $50 a month. They get access to me and many of my resources. We also have two mastermind groups this month. Our last meeting coming up about authorship and the continuing mastermind group about internet marketing. So if you're interested in either of these topics, join us in these groups. You can sign up to the webinar and the mastermind groups in the eGurus community. 
Are you a speaker, trainer, coach, consultant, or thought leader? If you'd like to use the internet to get more business or deliver your material, join the eGurus community. Find out more and sign up at eGurus.info. So that's it for Expert Gold Radio for September 2012. Hope you enjoyed it and learned something that you can use in your business. Thanks to the beautiful Sharon Kerwood for helping with the voiceovers. I look forward to having you join us again in October. We'll be talking with Dan Pointer, the publishing expert, about the huge publishing revolution. This is Gihan Pereira. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Expert Gold Radio Show. If you'd like to subscribe to the show, read the show notes, or leave your comments, visit expertgoldradio.com. And remember, great minds don't think alike.